Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Lowdowns. I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Jonathan McKinstry to speak about his globe-trotting career to date, spanning four continents. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Connor. Very glad to be with you. I'm looking forward to it. It's always you know, an honour to come on and chat um, with people like yourself. So, yeah, looking forward to the, the next bit of time. Jonathan, where in the world are you joining us from today? Uh, so I'm currently in the south of Spain. Um, so my home, I decided to make home in the south of Spain rather than Ireland. Um, when between things, so obviously at the moment, uh, I'm not working with any one team, just sort of do, using the time to sort of upskill and, and recharge. But yeah, I'm down in the south of Spain here. So, you know, a nice sort of balmy, I don't know what it is today, 22, 23 degrees, thankfully. And obviously we speak about your last job was, of course, with the Uganda national team up on a year ago now and you're recharging the batteries in sunny Spain. I suppose having a year outside of football, you wouldn't have had a career break like that before. I mean, what necessarily does a football coach get up to when he's not coaching? Well, I think when you're out of the game, you go from 100 miles an hour to zero miles per hour very quickly. And I think, first of all, it takes a little bit of time to adjust to that. Um, someone once told me years ago, um, uh, an experienced coach in Scotland said to me, you know, actually being a football manager or a head coach is very much like being an army general, you know, in the army or in football management. You go in and every day people wear what you tell them to wear, turn up when you tell them to turn up, run when you say run, eat when you say eat. And they do everything to you and give you 100 percent respect. But then the moment it's over, none of that's happening anymore. You go home to your wife, your kids, your dog, whatever it happens to be. And you all of a sudden go from this huge point of authority and responsibility to not having any of that. And so that leaves quite a big void. And it does. I would generally say anytime I've stepped out of a job, if I've not been immediately going into something else, it does take you three or four weeks just to reset and, you know, tidy all the loose ends up and then almost until you breathe again. And people would imagine, oh, in those first few weeks are very relaxing. But actually, from my experience, and I know from other people around me, almost in those weeks, your head's maybe a little bit more all over the place in terms of your thinking. It takes a few weeks to settle down. And then you just sort of start thinking, right, well, what can I do? Do I want to get straight back in? And often there might be some opportunities and you have to think, do I want to go in straight away? Is it the right thing? Or am I going to say no and almost invest in yourself? Because there's so little time when you're in a position to do upskilling and the game moves on so fast. You know, it's great that we have so many staff around us nowadays to do a lot of, you know, the video clipping and the sports science and the GPS and all these new things that have been added to the game. But equally, it's important for me to understand those things. So, you know, one of the things over the last year was going and doing, you know, a course for four or five months with Barcelona on sort of tactical analysis to understand more about the modern trends in tactical analysis, what is new about it, you know, going and doing stuff on emotional awareness and psychology to better understand, you know, why people do the things they do. And yeah, so for me, it's been time to learn, to learn new things, to go back and reflect on old things and see do they need adjusted. Um, but also, you know, just to take time 
and enjoy life a little bit. Um, I always say that um, if you see me at the end of a job and see me at the start of the next job, there's usually about a three kilogram difference <laughs> um, in a positive way because I start, you know, getting out on the bike, getting into the gym a lot more when I'm away from the game. And you just, you've got to use those moments to look after yourself, both mentally, physically, professionally, whatever way needs to happen to make sure you're ready to go back in fully, fully charged again. And it's a bit of a paradox, really, because as we spoke off camera, I mean, where in the world as a football coach do you have the luxury to take in five games over a weekend? Well, <laughs> I suppose speaking about Man United, whether or not that constitutes a game of football is, an, is another point. But um, it's a weird one. But if we're looking at your career as one big, great adventure, John, I mean, take us back to the start. What was your earliest football memory? Oh, earliest football memory. Um, so for me, I don't really know what it was that drew me in initially. Um, I grew up for my sins, Newcastle United fan, and I was the only person not wearing red in Northern Ireland. Trust me, everyone was either Manchester United or Liverpool in the 90s. And um, I was Newcastle. A half uncle played for them in the 80s, but I'm not sure that was the huge draw to them a little bit. Um, maybe it was the black and white stripes drew me in. I always liked Juventus as well. And maybe it was that. But also at that time, you've got to remember Newcastle was a, you know, it was the Kevin Keegan era. They'd been promoted to the new Premier League and they were the entertainers. And, and that drew me into the football. And yeah, I just, from the age of whatever that was, six, seven, eight, you know, just just threw myself into it. Absolutely loved anything to do with Newcastle United, anything to do with football, watching on the TV. And it was a funny one because my family are not a football family. Um, my brothers were more rugby. My sister wasn't really sports orientated. My father was motorsports. No one in my immediate family was football. And But yet I went into the deep end with it and sort of never got out of the pool again, so to speak. And amidst all that, how did you develop the coaching book? Because I know, right, you've begun coaching at a very young age. Yeah, I think a big part of it was um, on my mother's side, my uncle was a football person um, involved with an Irish league football team called Distillery, who are one of Ireland's oldest professional football teams. And medium, small size club, you know, a few hundred supporters at most games, home supporters. But from the age of whether it was maybe eight, you know, I learned he used to go every week and was involved with the club. I think he wrote the program and those sort of things. And, and I sort of, you know, tagged along with him by his sort of coattails and went every week. And so from the age of, I would say, eight or nine until I was 18 and left Northern Ireland, I went every week. I didn't like preseason games, everything. I never missed a game. And so every season I was watching 40 or 50 football matches in person, in the stands. And, you know, you talk about, I started coaching when I was 16, but by the time I was 16, I'd probably already watched 400 matches live in person, you know, up in the grandstand. And it is different than watching it on the TV. Yes, I watched all the games on the TV, watched Newcastle United, watched all the Premiership, the Northern Ireland games when I could. But going and watching Distillery in the Irish League every week, 
I think gave me a bigger picture of the game and you're starting to look at going, oh, why is the left winger going up the wing instead of inside? Why is the strike? You know, and, and I always used to remember, you know, it was a silly at the time. They had wingers who liked to play touchline wide. They had fullbacks overlapping. They had, you know, a classic number nine, number 10 combination up front. You know, it was that classic 90 successful football formula. And um, yeah, but watching that in person every week, I think gave me a real appreciation of the game in its totality. And it just seeped in without me knowing it, it sort of seeped in so that by the time I got to, you know, right, it's time to get a part-time job, the opportunity to go and coach football, you know, lent itself because I sort of thought, well, I understand this. So let's see if we can maybe work on it. It's interesting because, at the time at home in Ireland and in the North as well, there wouldn't have been too many road models to go off. Um, I think you mentioned on a previous podcast before, it was only kind of when the likes of Jose Mourinho came into popular culture, you know, a coach similar to yourself who had no player or had no playing career, so to speak. But when did it become a stage, John, when it was just like, you know what, I'm going to burn the boats in this, I'm going all in. Because I've seen from some of the earliest moves you made, I mean, I'm looking here, you went to university in the UK to study sports science. You spent some time with the Red Bulls in New York. You even went to write to dream with Tom Vernon in Ghana. Yeah, um, for me, it was sort of quite early on. Um, maybe it was through youthful naivety, but I genuinely looked at it and thought, why can you not train to be great at this? You know, if, if at the age of, when you're going and seeing a careers advisor and people are walking in and saying, right, I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a pilot. And I personally think all of these things are a lot more complicated than being a football coach. You know, I think, I think, you know, our job is the, the craft in our job is, is making something beautiful out of the simple um, because it is a simple game really. And so if people are going into a careers advisor and they say, right, I want to be a surgeon and there's a pathway that can be created for this 15, 16 year old to go and be a surgeon. Yes, it's going to take 15 years of education and hours of practice and dedication, and sleepless nights, but that they're being told it is possible. I couldn't understand walking into that same careers room and being told being a football manager was not realistic. I, I couldn't understand that logic it didn't stack up to me because if you're telling me a 16 year old can train to be an impeccable you know heart or brain surgeon or fighter pilot or whatever it happens to be then surely the same 16 year old with the same dedication can chart a path to being a top football coach or manager it just seemed logical to me um but it was definitely at the time people were like yeah, but it's not really realistic. You have to have been a player and then you retire and you become a coach. It's something you do when you're 35, 40. It's not something you do when you're 16. But I just thought, let's go for it. Um, and yeah, it just was like, and I was very fortunate because I had family around me who, you know, were a safety net who, yes, I think at times, especially early on, it was like, well, why not split your time? Why not do a degree in math or physics and do this on the side? But for me, it was like, yeah, but that's not how you get to be the brain surgeon. You don't go to become a brain surgeon and do it part-time. 
you do it full time, you dedicate yourself to it, you go above and beyond. And I don't know, it was something from a very early age, but it was all based in logic for me because I, I just, it, it didn't make any sense to me why you could train to be these incredibly complex jobs where they're life and death and you couldn't train to be a top level football coach. That just didn't, I couldn't understand that logic. But I, I always wonder about this, John. Is it indicative of the culture at home or is it something that's kind of more systemic? And as you know, you know, opinions and feedback and thoughts change as information changes. You know, I'm sure that you go back to Northern Ireland now and the same people that were kind of putting you off the coaching profession all those years ago now are the ones that are complimenting you, giving you a pat on the back. Yeah, like I think part of it maybe comes from the fact that in Northern Ireland it's a semi foot or a semi professional football culture. So I think that's realistic as well. Is that um, you're in a semi professional environment? So if you want to make a full time living out of this, you've got to go abroad. And I always think being from Ireland, football wise, is always the most challenging place to become a pro coach from because. You don't have a professional football environment, largely in Ireland. It's a part-time environment. So it's not like growing up in England or Scotland where you have a professional environment to go try and break into and be an academy coach or, or something and break through. But also you're then straddled with a, forgive the term, but an English-sounding name, which when you go abroad, I think, you know, when you haven't coached abroad, I often think that it would be easier to get jobs if my second name was Gomez or, you know, Nagelsman or something like that. If it was a little bit more, you know, almost having a, an English or a Anglophone name makes it a little bit more difficult to get jobs in the whole world. Um, they'll go for the Spanish or the French or the German or, you know, the South American, because I don't know. Maybe it sounds a bit more exotic or maybe British football has been tarnished over the last hundred years of being a certain type of football. But yeah, I think coming out of Ireland, making it as a pro football coach without a professional playing career to back you up is a challenging path to walk down. There's no doubt about it. And obviously no career guidance teacher could have prepared you for the career that you went on to have, John, or the career to date, which you've gone on to have coaching in Europe, North America, Asia, Africa. I mean, I suppose at this stage, could you put together a user manual perhaps for some coaches on adapting to new environments? I mean, for you, what, I mean, what is actually the process when you're taking these new jobs? Have you like a step-by-step -step process to kind of immerse yourself within the culture or is it just more kind of right tunnel vision now focus on the football and take care of what else needs to be taken care of off the pitch no I think it, it evolves over the years um, I think the most important thing when you go into new cultures is is how you create an environment for everyone else to start talking um, because a lot of cultures you go into around the world are still based in a hierarchical structure in that the head coach is there or the manager's there to make all the decisions and the coaching staff or the support staff are there to do what the manager says they should do. And that is still the case in a lot of coaching cultures around the world. And a lot of cultures full stop. It's, it's the, you have to be respectful to your peers, et cetera, et cetera. But when you go in, 
I don't have a cultural reference point for Rwanda when I step foot in Rwanda. I don't have one for Uganda, for Bangladesh, for Sierra Leone. And so it's important that I get that from other people. But because of the cultural norms of them telling me what they have to tell me, they don't necessarily want to do it because they don't want to be seen to be telling me how to do my job. They don't want to be seen to be disrespectful in any way. You know, there's a myriad of reasons. And so I think one of the things over the years that's had become very important that I cultivate is getting people in a safe space of, of talking and me letting them talk. And yeah, I've, I think I've become very adept at listening over the years. Um, I know that I can talk. I'm from Ireland. It's a gift we're born with. Um, but learning how to listen over the years and also then what you say immediately after when it's your turn to talk, because that thing you say immediately after really lays a platform for whether people will continue to talk to you and continue to be open with you. Um, and yeah, I think that's a real important thing in those first days in any new role, because people have to feel safe to communicate with you. And then from that, we can start talking about the coaching. We can start talking about, you know, all of the things we're going to develop and the, the ambitions we have. But it has to start with people being comfortable to talk, because if I just walk into a room and just give a lecture for the first five hours of being in a job, I don't think we get anything done. And learning to listen would have would have proven to be an invaluable skill, which you would have required in your first senior position, which would have been the first team coach of Sierra Leone at the age of 27. You know, at the time, the youngest international manager in the world, second of all time to Andre Village boss, who was 22 and he took British Virgin Islands. But, you know, taking that job upon at that stage, I mean, obviously working with players as old as yourself, if not older, how did you approach that challenge? We basically went in and said, we were quite upfront with the guys. We just said, look, let's work together. Let's go out. And there probably wasn't a lot of talking done before the first training session. Um, we would have had an initial team meeting, um, but we wanted to get out in the grass as quickly as possible because we knew out on the grass we would ace it. We just knew it. The guys I had around me who I'd worked with for, you know, from my Red Bull days, guys who were working with me at my academy at the time, you know, I knew even though this was new for them as well, it was like, look, running a session for pros is not really a huge amount of difference to running it for 17 and 18 year olds. And in fact, you probably do a bit less coaching with the pros because you don't have to stop for technical breakdowns quite so often. Um, so really, we knew that we would run a quality training session. And so it was like, right, let's get out there and let's, yes, we'll do the introductory meeting. Yes, we'll introduce how we want to do things, but let's leave most of the communication to after that first session, because we think that first session is going to be a winner. And we think the guys will enjoy it. They'll see that they'll see our personalities come out through our coaching because we'll be comfortable, even if it's a new environment where it's, you know, under pressure when you're out on the grass in that situation, you're comfortable. And I think we'll all know a little bit more about 
each other after that first 90 minutes on the grass. And, and yeah, after that, it was about communicating with the players. It was about having dialogue with them. It was about being clear with them about how and why we wanted to do things, but also being confident enough that when people pushed a little bit, as people do, they want to know. Because everyone, footballers, I've found, they want the best for the team, but they want the best for the team as long as it also includes the best for them more often than not. And so you'll have some players who maybe feel the strategy or whatever isn't the best for them personally, and they'll want to push a little bit. And it's so do you have the answer in those moments to also be a little bit firm, but fair, so that everyone knows the direction you're going in? Yes. And, you know, taking to the grass for that first day of Sierra Leone and training session as a young first-team coach, I mean, to this very day, has there been much within those eight, nine years, Johnny, that you've changed in relation to your coaching process? I don't play foxes and farmers on the first training session anymore, but we did on that first. I can't remember what it was. It was some silly warm-up game. I didn't run it. Tom Harris, who now works at North Carolina, um, ran it. He took the warm-up, but it was some silly warm-up game. It was some silly 10-year-old's warm-up game. So like, you know, foxes and farmers are stuck in the mud or something like that. I can't remember, but it was a daft warm-up game. But it was just to break the ice. It was like, right, it's going to do the job of warming the boys up and they're going to be laughing. And when people are laughing, they're more receptive. That's not to say we don't still do that at times, but I'm not necessarily sure we do it as the first training session anymore. Um, look, I think the demographics of a squad dictate as well. You know, I've went in Rwanda was a much younger squad, um, you know, was a lot more domestic based. So, and also you're coming in, you got to remember when I went into the Sierra Leone job, 99% of those players were saying, who is this? You know, and they'd looked on the internet, no doubt. They had, you know, whatever, looked on Wikipedia or, and if they'd looked on it then, there wouldn't have been anything. You know what I mean? Whereas, and so they're going, they're thinking, well, who's this guy? Whereas now I think when you go in, people have an expectation now of what you're going to be like. Um, but equally, I sometimes think, the view that the outside world has of me through things like this, or it, it's only part of the picture. Um, I think what players experience of me is, is a more full color version of me. And, um, but yeah, I definitely think they have an expectation of me. And so that influences a little bit in terms of those initial interactions. And of course, being at that age, you know, John building a staff at 27, managing up and down, playing politics it's very much akin to an ambassadorial role you know it's beyond the x's and o's which they're teaching you in a coaching course yep absolutely um i think especially in international football um putting a staff together in international football can be somewhat tricky because you're not necessarily offering people a full-time job all the time you're sort of saying to them can you come and do this um, you know, in international breaks and then it's, are they going to give up their time with their family? Um, and depending on where they are in that moment, it might be appropriate for them or not. Equally, it also is about creating a staff around you that is appropriate for the environment. You know, I'm a big believer that you have to utilize local 
workforce, you've got to utilize the local knowledge, the local staffing. And so if we've got a goalkeeping coach or an assistant coach or a fitness coach in country who's qualified, experienced, we feel will fit into the group we're trying to do, let's use them. Let's not farm it out to some international member of staff. But equally, if it's not there, if we don't have the sports science support in country, maybe we do have to bring someone in from outside. Um, and so it's a decision. So whilst there are some people who've worked with me in different positions, equally, there are other people who've worked with me for a period and then dropped out and then came back in in a later job simply because it's about what's appropriate for that environment. It's not a case, I, I don't go in and meet with clubs or federations and say, I have to bring these five staff in. I go in and say, I need the budget to bring staff in. However, the first thing I'm going to do is going to come in and assess what is there on the ground already. Because if we can work with that historical knowledge and environmental knowledge that's already there, I think it's all the better for all of us. As you said earlier on, I'd like to bring you up on it. You know, football really is a simple game when you distill it down to its essence, you know, both on and off the pitch. But then transitioning out of international football, going to the club scene, how did you find that? It was an interesting one. I've always said that doing it that way around is less common. And in fact, there's probably only a handful of people if even that, who have started as an international head coach and then became a club head coach. It's usually the reverse of that. But I think it's the better way to do it, if I'm honest, because as an international coach, you have so little access to your players that you become very particular in how you use your time. You don't waste time. You don't ask players to hang around longer than they need to. You're very good at distilling information down, so you're not having, you know, just loads of information that players can't process in that four or five day period. So you're, you get very good at utilizing your time effectively as an international coach. When you go into a club environment, then you've got all the time in the world, you know, you can do extra, you can do whatever, but actually what I found is when we went in and we take this really distilled down, you know, almost, you know, we've got, We've got information transition or transmission down to a fine art and players really appreciate it because you're not having them hang around the training ground all day. You're not having them sit in one hour long meetings. You're not having them out on the pitch for two and a half hours. You're getting it in. You're getting quality work done at a high tempo in all aspects. And then you're letting them go home to their families. And I really think there's a huge appreciation of that from the players and the coaches takes them a little bit to get used to because they're, they think they're doing less, but actually what we're doing is we're making the time we spend with them higher quality time, which allows them to go and recover. And then they also are appreciating that the recovery is part of the process. And so I think doing it that way around in terms of your contact time with players and staff was highly beneficial. The big learning curve and adjustment we had to make going into a club environment was international football at its most compact is the winter period so you've got games start of september october november so you've got three weeks between international camps that's still three weeks to analyze two teams 
you know, analyze your two games you've just played and analyze your next two opponents. You've got three weeks to do that. You can go down to the minutia of if we attack that player on his left shoulder, he's going to foul us. If you attack him on his right, he's not. You know, and so actually taking him on a side where he's going to pick up an early yellow card. You know, we were able, at international level, we were able to distill it down to, we think these players, we can ensure they are yellow carded before half time, not through any, you know, foul play or any dishonest means, but just by playing in a certain way against them. We think they'll give away free kicks and fouls, yellow cards, making it easier to access space. At club level, when you're playing two games a week rather than two games every month, you don't have that time to go into that minutia of detail. You're still able to get a reasonable amount of detail, but you don't have the five-page report on every single player. You have a half a page report on every single player. So that is the difference. And it's, yeah, it's a different... You're, you're painting with different brushes is what I would say. Um, you're doing the same thing, but you're painting with different brushes. But obviously you've been intentional about it because it comes from learned experience. You know, so, I mean, that probably feeds back into what we've begun this podcast speaking about. You're spending a lot of the time now, um, you know, feeding back into the emotional side of the game, seeing how players react and whatnot. But, you know, as a coach, you should be really able to manage the players' emotions as a whole, individually and collectively as a group. And we were just speaking off camera about how, you know, players nowadays at the top end of the game, they know if they've made a mistake. So in a way, it's just about managing that emotion. So it's really interesting just to hear about how you've taken one thing out of international football and how you're trying to kind of go about and kind of redo it with the club scene. Yeah, I think I would probably counter that a little bit in terms of just even the language there. I'm not sure it's about managing people's emotions. Um, I think when you're talking about managing emotions, you're what we mean, what most of us mean when we say manage emotions is can we take them and put them over there somewhere for a bit? That's actually what most people mean. I don't know if it's what you meant subconsciously no. or not, but it's what a lot of people do mean. It's like I'm feeling frustrated, right? Forget about it and move on. But actually, that's not dealing with them, embracing them jumping on the ride with them. You know, people talk about, I saw a great um, pre-match today um, with Jurgen Klopp, where they were asking, is the Derby against Everton any different than any other games? And actually he said one of the things they've worked on is that it isn't, because normally, historically, the Derby is like the most emotional game. But he's saying, but we want to play with that emotion every week. We don't want the Derby to be especially a motive game. We want the players playing with that emotion. And so it's, and, and you know, it's almost like that roller coaster of jumping on it and let's go um, and let's live in that emotion. Let's, you know, use it as a tool um, and, you know, really be that emotional team. He was sort of saying, we want to be an emotional team. And, and so I think that's part of it as well is that, you know, okay. I have a player who is more emotional. Um, we're all emotional just in different ways, but he exhibits his emotion in maybe ways that other people don't, let's say. And how can that be utilised to his, his or her best use of it? Um, that's a messy way of saying it, but it's a messy, it's a messy topic. 
you know, if anyone thinks dealing with players' emotions and psychology and all of this is a clean topic, it's not. Um, it's It can be a messy topic. And because it's a messy topic, people like avoiding it a lot of the time. Um, but yeah, I think that's the thing. It's like throw yourself in the river and see where it takes you. Exactly. And you never come out of the river the same way twice. And I, I just think it's about... You know, when you sign up for football, you're really kind of <laughs> signing away a lot of things. You're embracing it. You're embracing the roller coaster of a ride because that's what it is. And that's another point I wanted to touch upon with yourself, John. I mean, were you someone from day one that set lofty goals that you're all the time you have in the background, this 10-year plan that you're edging towards? Or is it perhaps the goalposts are moving, they're shifting ever so slightly? I think they are constantly shifting in certain ways. Um, I think in terms of where are the mountains you want to climb are always the same. You know, for me, I love, and any of the people who listen to your podcast or into American sport, you know, I'm a huge fan of John Wooden. And his quote is like, it's up on my wall in the office here, you know, success is the self-satisfaction of knowing you did your best to become the best you're capable of becoming. So that's the mountain. You know, what is what is maximum potential? What is our ability? What's the highest mountain we can climb? And so for me, I'm constantly reviewing and looking at myself and saying, right, how, you know, I believe I'm doing the best but that I can, but I constantly think I'm reassessing of how big the mountain is in front of me that's still left to climb. I think that's the thing. Um, I, I think we're, it's very hard to judge maximum potential. And so for me, that goal has never really changed. What it looks like, I think, changes over time. What I believe success to be in the tangible sense changes a little bit over time. But for me, the one thing that always comes back to is yeah, are we maxing out our potential? Are we, are we taking where we're starting? Are we growing it to the best it can be? And that might be winning a championship. It might be getting a promotion or qualifying for a tournament. But what I found over the years actually is the, that end point of winning a trophy or you know what everyone in the media or the supporters or whatever they happen to believe is success actually is a reasonably empty moment <laughs> it's you know it's oh we're here right let's go again <laughs> let's let's we're we're at, we're at the top of this hill but this isn't the mountain yeah we've achieved this but we got to go again and i was surprised a little bit at that um when it first happened when you sort of get to it and then you think you sort of expect that moment to be this huge you know releasing of tension or the hot air balloon going up in the air or whatever it happens to be and, and then I find it just wasn't. It was, oh, we've done this, right? Let's go again. Let's go then. You know, keep keep searching for El Dorado, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> There's a great uh, Dutch saying I constantly remind myself of. It's a uh, success arrives on foot, but the parents on horseback. And I think what you're just saying there is indicative of that. But do you not think then, John, that like the mountains that you've climbed already in your career, that is a more that is a source of motivation for players. In a way, that's a way like, you know, that's a surefire way to build trust with them because it's interesting when you speak about 
the Siri Leone and players looking up your Wikipedia when you took that job initially at 27 and there's nothing there. Whereas now you could go onto your Wikipedia or you could find anything on the World Wide Web about yourself and you're like, oh, this guy backs himself. Wow, he's gone out there. He's put himself on the line. You know, that in of effect of itself should be a source of motivation for those guys. It might be. Um, I think one of the things that I've really embraced in recent years, though, is is to is to talk with players as a group, as individuals, beyond all of what I consider to be reasonable, superficial stuff. Um, so that yes, okay, yes, we've set records. Yes, we've won trophies or whatever it happens to be. But actually, I think the most powerful moment and most engaging moments with players are the moments where we talk about where we've where we have failed, where we've taken the wrong path, where it's it's been a struggle. Um, and because I think when players, because you gotta remember, players, everyone in this game, this game is brutal. This game is brutal. People are judged 24-7. Young guys and girls, they're on whatever it is, social media, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it happens to be, all the time. And, you know, they're getting, if, if they're at a level that we've thankfully been at in terms of international football, you know, they're getting pinged with messages and tags and whatever. And they're seeing people criticize them, criticizing everything they do. And it's a tough environment that... These guys and girls, you know, they believe that is where their value is. And so it's almost to go beyond that and go, look, what the world out there sees of you is not who we are in this room. You know, and here I've been and it's this sort of thing. If you'd asked me 10 years ago, would I take this approach? I would have went, no, you're crazy. But genuinely, I've had sit downs with a whole group of guys where I've been telling them about tough moments in my life that sort of has my eyes glazing over in terms of their emotional moments that have been tough for me. But what I believe is by sharing those moments with these, you know, ambitious young professionals that they also know that their tough moments are not unique and that it's all right to feel under the caution and under pressure at times and that it's all right then to share that with other people and we can drive forward. But if if you'd asked me 10, 15 years ago, is it all right to cry in front of your players? I would have said, no, you, you can't do that. You're the head coach or the manager. Alex Ferguson wouldn't have done that sort of thing. But I think that connection of true sort of empathy can can really take you places. And I think it's it's important because I think it, yeah, I think it's just important in, in many more ways beyond the football pitch. Yes, and it's that ability to relate. It's just such a human component. And I think at the end of the day, another quote from John Wooden himself, yeah, you can coach in basketball, but you want to coach the human behind the basketball player. And I think that's a huge thing of why we're in coaching in the first place. It's because of that human connection. And John, these guys are leaning on you for advice. I mean, where do you go to get coached? Or where do you go now to solicit advice? Yeah, I think for me, it's always been one of my challenges that I've had to sort of go out and, and really make a concerted effort because 
you know, if you come through the game as a pro player, you have this huge network developed up over 15, 20 years through academy football, pro football. You know, you've had all the people you've played with, many of whom would go on to coaching. You've had all the coaches you've worked with at a myriad of clubs at different levels. And so you have this huge network. Whereas what I've found is not having came that route. Yes, you have the people who were maybe your tutors on your licenses, um, or the guys who were on your courses with you, who you develop relationships with. One of the challenges for me, however, was that, you know, I did my B license when I was 18. So the next youngest person on the course was 10, 15 years older than me. So how do you build up a relationship with someone who's, you know, almost twice your age? Um, same when I did my A license, I was 24. The next youngest person on the A license course was in his late 30s, early 40s. You know, these were pro players who were retiring and I was this 24-year-old doing the course. So I did find it more challenging and I, it is probably a regret of mine that I look back at when I did my A license and B license that I didn't expand my network in the way that I could have in order to then go and seek advice off people and pick up the phone. I think I've done a lot better at it doing my pro license and more recently doing the LMA's diploma in football management that they run with the University of Liverpool. Because now in my 30s, most people are my peers. You know, they're guys who are in their 30s or 40s, first team managers, first team coaches. So we're on the same level as it were. And so having that relationship and, you know, dropping people a text message or a call, you know, in fact, it was only yesterday I was on with a guy who I did my pro license with a few years ago, who's out in Spain at the moment doing some stuff. So, yeah, I think it's become better and that network's there, but it's also just about making the effort to keep in touch with people and check in on people and, you know, not just be the person who picks up the phone when you're looking for something, because, that is so obvious and it is um it really doesn't get you anywhere whereas it's disingenuous whereas if you're the person who's constantly you know picking up the phone or dropping a message or you know checking in when you're in time then when you do actually need something it's not an aberration that you're calling someone you're calling because you're friends that your colleagues that you have a, a healthy respect for each other and then going forward, looking at the future, John, I mean, what will be the set of considerations which you will examine, I mean, that you will have prior to taking this new job or this new challenge, whatever you embark upon? So I think one of the things is I'm very clear on how I like to work and what my ambitions are in terms of just what the football club or the federation will look like one year into our time together, three years, five years into our time together. What, you know, if I, if I am the red ink that's being thrown into the paint pot, I know what color mixture is going to come out or what I want to come out at the other end of it. And so when I speak with clubs and federations, it's very much like, this is who I am. Let's understand what you want. And is there is there 70, at least 70% alignment, 70 to 80% alignment on either where you are, what you want right now in terms of what I offer and where you are, or a similar amount of alignment in your aspirations? So maybe we only have 40% alignment right now, but you, what I'm selling you 
is where you want to go, where you genuinely want to go. And so you can see very close alignment aspirationally. And if those things, if there's that level of alignment, then I sort of think, okay, this is something we can really get our teeth into and really go at it. Um, but if that alignment's not there, and I've said this, like I finish calls with chairman and stuff, and I say to them, I'm like, look, you might love what I'm saying because you think, oh, this is a fantastic thing. Johnny really believes in what he's doing. We believe he could do that with our club and we'll be successful because of that. But it's not really the way we saw our club going. I say to them, if that's in your head, if the thing that's attracting you to me is you believe I can bring success and not all of the other things, don't give it to me. Give it to someone else. Please give it to someone else. Um, because I think we'll ultimately disengage reasonably quickly when we're on the ground if our aspirations aren't aligned. And then it's better for everybody. And I say, that's no problem. I don't need you to offer me the job. I want if we are a fit for each other for us to come together. But if we're not a fit, please give it to somebody else. And, you know, we'll stay in contact and I'll help out wherever I can. You know, even there's clubs who I've I've interviewed with or I've spoken with who've ultimately either we haven't agreed for one reason or another or they've went a different direction. Yet I still have working relationships with people at the club where I'll recommend players to them or I'll you know help them out in certain situations because just because it's not the right fit head coach club isn't the right fit doesn't mean we can't have some sort of footballing relationship. For anyone out there, John, that's somewhat inspired by this conversation today and, you know, people out there that want to embark upon a similar journey, what advice would you have for them? Um, coach as much as you possibly can. Um, go out and work with every team that's available. doesn't matter. What, I have coached at every level of the game. I've coached the six-year-olds. I've coached boys and girls. I've coached recreational players. I've coached academy players. You know, I've coached amateur league players, adults. I, I've coached every level of the game. I never turned stuff down. I wanted to coach. And I see a lot of young coaches coming through now. And even I speak to some, and even some like former pros um, who are like, oh, but, you know, I don't really want to do it if it's not with like the, the academy team or whatever. And I'm like, you learn this craft every time you step on a football pitch or every time you step into a gym to do like some school football lesson, you learn how to communicate what's in your head to another human being. And that's the key to coaching. It doesn't matter if you've got these Johan Cruyff-esque ideas in your head. If you cannot communicate those ideas effectively to someone else in a way that they want to do them, that motivates them to do it, then it really doesn't matter what's in your head. And so I say to people, go out and coach all of the time. And look, there's so many opportunities out there in terms of further education nowadays. And it's it's great that there is. But I look at it and I, you know, let's take the UK, for example. And I went and did a degree in sports science and coaching. I did not for one minute believe that degree would ever get me a job in football. I did it because I felt there was knowledge to be learnt that would help me understand how the game was developing, how sport was developing. 
But I look now at all of these universities and colleges offering all these courses for coaches and saying, you know, you can go and work in the football industry after that. And I'm going, where are the jobs? Where are the jobs? And if you came to me as a 24-year-old coach or a 23-year-old coach who's just finished university, who hasn't spent a minute on the grass or has spent only a small amount of time on the grass, that would concern me greatly. Um, whereas you might not have the course from the fancy university, but you've spent 15 hours a week coaching, then that you're sort of going, well, you probably know how to communicate with somebody. Now, if you can do both, fantastic. And you can do both. I did both. Um, you know, whilst I was doing my degree, I was also coaching football in the community, coaching the university men's team and coaching an under 16 boys team. Um, so I had three different coaching roles whilst also doing my degree. So it's completely possible to have both at the end of it. But I sometimes worry that people think, oh, if I go and do this course in football development or football coaching, and that'll put me through my B license at the same time, and I'll finish university with a degree in sports management and a UEFA B license, then I'm ready to go. I'm not sure how easily that that profile of candidate is getting a job in football. So back to my initial thing, coach, 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 get out there with every team you can and learn how to do this. Wonder, do we see that changing anytime soon? But um, you know what, John, it's an absolute privilege to have a lot of your magnitude on the podcast. Always enjoy speaking to, or speaking with people that have been at the top end of the game, source of inspiration, knowledge, I'm trying to go come back at you with questions whilst at the same time scribbling notes down here for my own accord. But John, absolute pleasure having you on today. No, thank you very much, Connor. It's been great. And if anyone, the other thing I was saying these things, if anyone wants to reach out, um, whether it's on LinkedIn or you know email, whatever, you know, get in touch. Um, I'm always very happy to engage with people. And if there's any way I can assist people in sort of taking that next step, I'm always happy to do so.